0: We all know that God is love, but for most of us, I think there's a tiny tickle of doubt in the back of our minds when we read through certain passages in the Old Testament. We know it's supposed to be the same God in the New and Old Testaments, but I think we secretly agree with the critics of the faith that he somehow had a personality transplant while he was taking a break between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what really happened? That's what we're going to take a look at today. My name is Sam. And I'm Vic. And this is the Truth Other Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. So today we're going to be talking about who is God? What is he like? I know that it seems like there is a major difference in the Old and New Testament. right? And I
1: think that's what we specifically want to talk about. Like, why in the Old Testament is God telling people to, like, start wars and go wipe out cities? And then in the New Testament, we talk about Jesus who's forgiving people, like, individual people of their sins. Mm-hmm. So it just seems like this huge contrast between, you know, God of the Old Testament and God in the New Testament. And I think that's what we want to talk about today. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I was wondering, too, like before we get into it, is why does this actually matter? Like, why does it matter if there is a difference? Even Mm -hmm. if God had a personality change between the Old Testament and the New Testament, like who cares?
0: Yeah. So I think, first off, there's a couple different things. First thing is to blindly follow someone without actually knowing them is very hard to do we It's hard to realize, but our obedience is based on trust, and trust is based on knowing you don't know you don't trust someone you don't know hmm. so for him to tell us to trust him, but then we don't know him, that's gonna be hard for us to do, especially when the big issues come so that's one one reason the second reason is that God wants us to know him, he really does want us to get to know him he wants that relationship with us and and so he, despite popular opinion, he doesn't, he doesn't need any help. He doesn't need us to just do stuff for him. He created the universe. I think he can handle anything he needs. But what he wants is, is for us to have a relationship with him. So if there seems to be a difference, God wants us to know him well enough to understand what that difference is and why it's there and if it is there even because he, he desires us to trust him more and he desires that relationship with us. So we're going to move on. The great A.W. Tozer, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If you think, if, if God is a kind, powerful father in your life, then you're going to treat him much differently than if you believe he's an evil, abusive dictator. Hmm. So really, your whole life, your, the trajectory of your whole life is going to depend on what your view of God is like. So I think that's pretty important. So we want to tackle this, especially us as young Christian, young people who've grown up in Christian homes. I think we've accidentally taken in a lot of wrong theology about God. And so we just want to look and see what does the Bible say? Where have I gone wrong? How can I get my mind right?
1: And I think that's going to be good. So like, what actually is he like? So Mm -hmm. we have our things that we grew up believing. So what are we going to examine today?
0: All right. So first things first, we, we have to realize that God is not like us. He is so much greater, and and he is so much more. In fact, to use greater or stronger or mightier or wiser, is is still comparing him with us. And he says, "Who can you compare me to? Who will you compare me to?" And the answer is no one. You can't compare God to anyone. So he is not just a better version of us. He's not just a more perfect or stronger or mightier or wiser version than us. He is completely different. He is altogether different. He's not even. It's not even a way that we can compare because he is so much other and so much different. We have to understand that if we're going to get a grip. Uh, because if if we look at life thinking, oh, God is just, he's like me, just smarter and, and bigger and, and stronger, we're going to get really confused and we're going to be really disillusioned with, with things that happen. Whereas if we realize, no, he is completely different and he is completely other, then we still might be confused, but we're going to be able to hang on to that truth knowing that he knows best and, and he is greater and he's so much more.
1: So we're not even talking about apples and oranges. We're talking about apples and elephants. We're talking right. about it's, like something totally different. We can't
0: even, can't even compare. In fact, God says in Isaiah 55, eight and nine, He's he gives us this picture and we all know this passage. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So he's got space, all of space, all of the cosmos versus one little planet our little earth and we can't even fathom how big that is our earth doesn't even register it wouldn't even show up in the expanse of space and that is a little picture of god saying this is this is what my thoughts are like compared to your thoughts so god is not like us he is completely above and beyond, but also God is like us, kind of, in the sense that he wants to relate to us. He desires relationship. So even though we are so so far removed and so different, he desires us to know him and to be in relationship. So he gives us his word, he gives us creation, he gives us these pictures of uh, things like marriage and parenthood to help give us clues about who he is and what he is like and what he wants from us. <clears throat> so we're going to do our part to try and pick up some of these clues, try and figure out what it is he is like, and then move on from there.
1: And I think first we're going to talk about like what God says about himself. And mm. I think that's cool because how better to get to know someone than what they talk about themselves.
0: Yes, exactly. So we're going to stay in the Old Testament this time just because I feel like that's where the hang-ups are. And we're going to start with a passage— where he does, where God talks about Himself. Now we know that everything in the Bible is inspired, and so if it's talking about God, then it's going to be true. But this one, this passage here, is really cool because it's Him straight from straight from His own His own mouth. Mm-hmm. So this is Exodus thirty-four. God is He's going to He's meeting up with Moses to give Moses the Ten Commandments for the second time. Moses asks to see His glory. God says, "You couldn't survive that, but I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will pass." before you and mm-hmm. then you will be able to see my glory from the back. So we pick up in verses 5 through 7. And it says this. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, "The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Now, this has got to be one of my favorite Old Testament passages because it's God talking about himself straight up, and and he's telling us what's up, and I think that's really, really cool. But
1: I think part of that, like, it sounds really cool in the beginning part. I'm like, yes, mercy, and yes, but then he's saying things that I don't necessarily like, mm-hmm. like he's talking about visiting iniquity onto, like the generations, and mm-hmm. so I think, I don't know, kind yeah. of like that's the fly in the ointment. Why did he put that in there? Yeah,
0: and I agree because it sounds so good. And then he goes on to talk about not clearing the guilty, and then you know, visiting these iniquities upon generation upon generation. And I'm like, oh God, why did you say that part? Like, could you have just stuck with the first part and we could just plaster that everywhere? And the simple answer. Is, is because that is who he is. And he can't, he's not going to change who he is. And for me, to try and edit him down mm. until I get a God I like is completely foolhardy, it's dangerous, and it's sinful. We have to realize his ways are not our ways. Mm. And that starts with realizing there's going to be things that I don't understand about him and I, I don't agree with. But that's my problem. That is a problem that my mind has to work through. And I have to ask in faith for that understanding or even just that faith to hold on all right so we're going to take a look at each part quickly and then we're going to dive into that last part so it says the lord the lord god and this is the self-existing almighty one so already that kind of should put a little knot in your brain like we can't even understand what what possibly what is self-existent like we we can't even understand what self-existence would even be like Almighty. All might, all power comes from this one source, this God. That's pretty crazy. That's something we we can hardly relate to. He moves on. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. This is compassion. It's graciousness. It's being slow to anger. It's being generous in mercy or kindness and fidelity or trustworthiness, stability. And then keeping mercy, which is, again, that goodness, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. So this one, it means the guilty don't get a free pass because God is too just for that. And that makes sense, right? We wouldn't give someone who's guilty a free pass.
1: Which is true. Well, and I think it depends on what it is because sometimes we do. But then I think (laughs) we all know there is a point, like, we're not going to let people get away with murder. Mm -hmm. Like, there's some things that we're like, if you let them free from that, that would be wrong. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. So I think we can agree on that, yeah. In our our messed up sense of justice, we understand, hey, when you do something bad, you got to pay for it. And God understands that infinitely more than we do. And so that really isn't a problem if we thought about it that actually we could actually agree with him. So we're going to hang on to that thought. We're actually going to touch on that one later. And then finally, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. I think here is where we think that's a little unfair, right? But as as we dig a little deeper, I think hopefully we'll be able to add to what we already think we know. Now, if we'd been reading through exodus to this point we would have noticed that part of part of this passage here sounds familiar and that is because back in exodus 20 when god was giving moses the 10 commandments for the first time he he mentioned things a few things about himself that he reiterates here in our passage so by cross-examining those two passages i think we're actually going to be able to gain a lot more insight into what god is like so this is exodus 20 verses 5 and 6 and this is god talking about not making or worshiping any kind of idols. And then he continues. He says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, Hmm. and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So with this additional information, now we, we can start to have significant insight into who gets the mercy, who gets the punishment, and why. So going back to our passage, it sounds like this, keeping mercy for thousands. Now we know of them that love me, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the th- and the children's children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. So on the one hand, he forgives sins. But then on the other hand, he does not clear the guilty of their sin. But now we can see why he he provides mercy towards them who love him or who follow his ways, and then he he provides judgment towards those who hate him and reject him so it's interesting to note that both parties are still sinning, so he's still forgiving these people because they sin, and he will judge the guilty because they sin, so both of them are are sinful. The difference is their relationship with God hmm. one group loves God, the other hates him and is and is rejecting his forgiveness and so they have to die with their sin still with them and this is the simple truth even though this is the old testament this is the simple truth of the 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 gospel the gospel is repent from your ways turn from your sin and have mercy or you keep your sin but then you have to pay for it and you will be judged and, and be punished for that sin so those who love him follow his ways they receive mercy those who hate him and refuse his ways, they are going to receive punishment.
1: So the question is, whose problem is it now? Because it's like you had a choice. Mm-hmm. I think at the beginning part, it's like, oh, that sounds terrible to visit this stuff and to not forgive people. But also, if they had an invitation, then it was their problem because they rejected it.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And at any moment, they could have turned around and right. chosen to go the other way, to go God's way. It was completely their choice. And this there's a passage in Ezekiel talking about This idea of like passing the iniquity on to the fathers, uh, from the fathers, and it's incredible because it talks about this this idea of these two camps, and it's worth reading on its own. We're just gonna hit the highlights for now. We're gonna read verse four and then nineteen through twenty three, and then thirty through thirty two. And this is God talking, and He says this. Behold, all souls are mine; as the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Yet ye say, Why? Doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? When the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he has committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he has committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel, for I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth saith the lord god wherefore turn yourselves and live so god is saying it is up to you i will work with you whatever it is you want however you want me to work with you that is what i'll do if you turn from your if you turn to righteousness i will not remember your wickedness but if you turn to wickedness i will not remember your righteousness i am completely just so whatever you do i will respond to in perfect justice so that means the choice is yours so going back to our passage, we can see that even though these iniquities are getting passed from generation to generation, it doesn't have to define them. They still have the power at any moment to turn around, ask for God's forgiveness. And in that moment, they move from guilty to forgiven. And obviously we, we don't have time to talk about the fact that, you know, we think of children and children's children as being innocent, and but they're going to grow up to become someone. and And that idea of you know, we don't I don't need... need my
1: parents to help me sin. I can sin by myself. We can just do that fine. just
0: fine. We don't need our parents' iniquity on us. We we can come up with our own sins, quite fine. <laughs> Here's one more thought that hopefully it'll make you think a little bit. It says, "Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation." So this idea of iniquity, we think of, uh, you know, it's perversity or depravity. We might think of it as a uh, history of your sin. Some theologians call it. Uh, generational sin or a generational curse i think it's just the idea of having a sin that gets passed down through the generations Uh, maybe adultery or drunkenness or laziness or anger something that you know if your grandfather great-grandfather grandfather grandfather, father did it's going to be much more likely that you are going to struggle with that as well
1: because you grew up in that environment and you Mm -hmm. are around and familiar with that that makes sense
0: so if this is a generational sin like that we could liken it to a generational Uh, A genetic condition, something that gets passed down, you know, some kind of illness or some kind of condition that gets passed down from generation to generation. Now, if nothing changed, if there was no cure, then that illness would continue through that bloodline basically indefinitely. It would just keep on going from generation to generation, and it would never stop.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But in this passage, talking about this spiritual and sinful genetic condition, it says that it's only going to go to the third or fourth generation, and then it's going to stop. So who stopped it? And the, the answer is God stopped it. No one else could. No one huh. has the power to stop it. So what if God in his sovereignty and in his mercy steps into the situation and says, you know what, four generations, that's enough. That's enough of this iniquity. I will stop this here. And it goes no no further. So instead of that ball bouncing forever all the way down through the generations, what if he catches that ball and stops it after the fourth generation?
1: So it could be a mercy and not a like continual curse. That's very interesting because mm-hmm. that's not it's what a I think of. different way
0: to look at it. Yeah, when
1: I first look at it.
0: So you have those facts. So you can ha- look at it two different ways. You can say God is punishing them for four generations. Or you can say God is lifting the punishment that they deserve forever after only four generations. Now, God doesn't say. He doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, clarify that. But my question is, which one of those options sounds more like the Lord? the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So could it be that we're looking at this all wrong? This is a foreign concept, but why is it so hard to imagine? God just told us the verse before that, that he is full of goodness and mercy. So why is it so hard to believe? And honestly, I think there are some reasons that we as humans have a really hard time believing God's goodness. We'll talk about those later. But our our minds don't naturally assume God's goodness. They should, but they don't. They, they assume, we look at the things that we think he's doing wrong or that he's being cruel or heartless and we tend to focus on those things. And again, we'll talk about that later. To close, just one more thought about our passage. You know, sin doesn't just vanish. In fact, God would be unjust if he let people off the hook for the sins that they committed. If he told you know, a murderer, you know what, we're just going to pretend that murder didn't happen. No one's going to pay. That's actually unjust. That's an unjust judge, and God is not unjust. He is infinitely more interested in justice than we are. Mm-hmm. So he gives others mercy, but that doesn't mean the punishment goes away. It just means the punishment gets transferred to someone else, and we obviously— seeing the whole of the entirety of the bible we know who that someone else is Mm -hmm. so now looking in this passage when he forgives mercy and gives mercy to thousands that is a that has a heavy implication because what he is saying is he's saying out of all of you people i i would rather that you bring your sins to me and i through my son i eat that sin and that sin becomes my own and i I take on that complete punishment. I'd rather you bring your sins to me and I take the punishment than for you to try and pay for those sins yourself. That is who we're talking about.
1: And the question is, is that the God that you know, that you think about when mm-hmm. you read the Old Testament? Is that the God you're thinking about? Right. That's interesting.
0: Not not often, not for me. So here are a few truths. There are three truths here that we can kind of pull out of this that I want to leave you with. Truth number one is God is unrealistically merciful and kind to his children. So just imagining he forgives their their iniquity, his, their transgression, their sins, thousands, and he, he heaps upon them his goodness and his mercy. Truth number two, he exacts perfect, unwavering justice on his enemies, on those who hate him. So if you're in that camp on those who hate him, he will give you your perfect Horrible, but completely just an unwavering, perfect justice. So we got these two camps. We got the people who who love God and he shows them mercy and forgives their sins. We've got the other camp, that his enemies who hate him, and he must judge them fully and perfectly. Here's the third truth. The third truth is this. God's enemies can become his children at any time. That, that is the God that we serve. So can you see how simple and perfect and beautiful this is? He's basically inviting the whole world and he's saying, guys, turn from me, like like from Ezekiel, turn from me. I have no I have no pleasure that the wicked would die, but rather that he would return from his sins and live. Come to me, bring your sins to me, I will pay for your sins. All the I don't care how many you come, I want more and more people to come. Don't live in your sin. My justice will destroy you. Come hide away. Hide in me. Give me your sin. I will take it. I will destroy my own son because that's how much I care about you. I would rather take that sin on myself than have you try and pay for it. And that is the God that we serve. And our question to you, is that the God you know? Because for the longest time, for years, that was not the God I knew. I did not think of him that way at all. But why is that? It shouldn't be that way. And we're going to talk about that next time. So for now, we're just going to leave it here and just, just think about that. And we encourage you, as, as you go, remember, whether you eat, whether you drink, whether you just learn about God and who he is, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. We'll see you back here next time.